test. It's not my fault, I'm not moving. <laughs> I have to use the ordinary mind. First of all, I apologise that I don't have a mic, so um, hopefully I'm speaking uh, loud enough that you can all hear me. But equally as ever, we have our stage text, speech to text interpretation happening, so if you ever find things difficult to hear, do look up at the words. Um, I am thrilled to be welcoming uh, Fiona here today. Um, I'm rather thrilled because I feel in many ways slightly responsible for this talk in that I was having a casual conversation uh, with Fiona quite some time ago. Um, really about how we were going to promote our current exhibition, Transplanting Life. And out of this casual conversation um, came quite a lot of fascinating history about the BKPA, at which point I turned around and said, do you want to come and do a talk here? And so here we stand today. Um, but uh, as we have this talk happening, I will shut up now. Um, Fiona is the Policy Director for the British Kidney Patient Association and has been so for three and a half years. And she herself has a very personal relationship with the charity, uh, for reasons that she will, of course, be talking about in the course of her lecture. So without more ado, I shall hand you over. Thank you very much. Thank you, Hayley. <laughs> and thank you for mentioning that conversation. <laughs> it uh, serves me right for chatting on too much, doesn't it? So thank you all so much for, for coming in today to listen to the talk about the charity. But it's not just a talk about a charity. It's a talk about, about real lives, and it's a talk about transplants and kidney failure as well. Our founder is 90 now, and I went through these slides with her the other day because she, Mrs. Elizabeth Ward, she is such a part of the reason this charity exists in the first place. So I just thought I would share that with you. I've put my talk into about three different areas, really. So one is about why we need to have a charity like ours and how the charity was, was founded. The second will be a bit more about my own reasons for being part of it and some of the figures and things around that. And then we'll go on to a bit more about what we've been doing in the situation nowadays. So, let's look at how it all started. So in 1970, uh, Mrs Ward's son, he's called Tim, but everyone called him Timbo, developed kidney failure. He'd been ill with a condition called nephritis, which is a swelling of the kidneys, it's just a general term, really. He'd been ill for about four years prior to that. 
and eventually his kidneys did fail. He was only 17. Treatment was very uncertain at that time. So now we, we talk about things like dialysis to help with kidney failure. We talk about transplantation. It was really, really in its infancy in that time. And people knew, people still don't know that much about it, but people knew far less about it. So over the next 17 years, before he passed away at the age of 34, he had three transplants and an awful lot of surgery and quite a long time on kidney dialysis. Because of her experience with a young man and his struggles, Elizabeth Ward realised that there was this gap out there and she basically got going and did something about it, hence founding the charity, the British Kidney Patient Association. So there he is. She, she calls him a funny little thing, but I think actually, I think he's, I think he's a, a good-looking boy. Um, and that's probably him just before his kidneys failed when he was a schoolboy. So let's look back at a few years of medical advances that, of course, many of the August um, members of the Royal College will be more than familiar with. But uh, from, from our point of view, the point of view of patients, these are very important facts in history. So back 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago, we started up the, op the possibility of transplants by joining blood vessels together, and that was Alexis Carell. The first corneal transplant took place in 1905, which is extraordinary now when we look back. There's over 2,000 transplants every single year, corneal transplants, and it doesn't, the cornea doesn't re require a blood supply in order to uh, keep keep ready to be transplanted, and it can be retrieved and used a long time after death. As with many of these things, war brought on the understanding of blood transfusions. And then in 1954, what, we what is generally agreed to be the first kidney transplant took place in Boston, USA. Somebody had the, the idea that somebody with a failing kidney could perhaps have that replaced by a kidney from somebody else who, wasn't, who was well. And this was identical twins. And they both did go on and live for quite a few years after that. Eventually, this came over to, the, to the, the UK, and our first kidney transplant here was at Edinburgh Royal Infirmary. And then in the Manchester Royal Infirmary, carried on with that tradition. Now, as these things started to become possible, it became, uh, Mrs Ward actually became aware that maybe people should be aware that they could donate their kidneys. So she went, and we'll talk about this a little more later, but she went to Sir Keith Joseph, who was then the Secretary of State for Health, and said to him, can we please put something together, a donor card, so people can say that they want to donate their organs? And uh, that's what happened. Those, those donor cards were introduced in 1972. In 1981, because of course you can donate far more than just your kidneys, um, the, the, uh, the, the kidney donor card, the red one that you'll perhaps be more familiar with, was brought in. <coughs> and because of the increased activity, the first donor transplant coordinator had to started working as well, which with the organisation which is now called NHS Blood and Transplant. How she got those cards to actually happen is a bit of a story. Her, Keith Joseph's son was at school with Timbo, and I believe she said to him, Mrs Ward said to Sir Keith Joseph, if that was your boy going through this, wouldn't you want to maximise his chances of a, of a future? And he went, yep, I agree with you. And that's how she convinced him, using the personal story. And there it is. Now, how many of you carry one of those, have seen one of those? They have changed nowadays, but they're quite, they're quite familiar, aren't they? I'm proud to say I, I did have one of those uh, back in the day. They've now been replaced by... Well, they look like this now, although... They're pink ones now. Has anyone got one of these pink ones? No. But if, but if you send off for a card now, if you register now, you'll be sent something that looks, well, card version of that. So that was the old donor card, and it must have made an awful big difference to a lot of people's lives. <coughs> so who are we? What do we do? So we are a patient support charity set up with just one mission to improve quality of life every single day for kidney patients, no matter who they are, no matter where they live. That's what we were set up for over 40 years ago now. 
So why do we need to do that? I've already explained that, that um, treatment was uncertain in the beginning, and as we were able to treat more patients and save more lives, numbers started to increase. And I think this slide is quite stunning, actually. Over that period of time, less than 20 years, the patient numbers doubled. And I'll just explain what some of those, those numbers mean, those things mean at the top. The green is just transplant. So that's the numbers on transplant. So there are now, for the first time, more people living in the UK with a transplant than there are on dialysis. So that's a huge sign of success. The other things there refer to different forms of dialysis treatment, which is how the, the system will attempt to replace the, the work of, of your natural kidney, although it's inadequate. The first PD is peritoneal dialysis, which is a tube in your tummy. Um, which basically fluid is, is put into, into the peritoneum. It attracts by osmosis the, the poisons in your system, and then you drain it out four hours later and then replace, replace the fluid on a repetitive basis. You can take that at home. You can also have hemodialysis at home, and I'll show you a picture of that in a minute. Not very many people take that, that but that did used to be the way when Timbo was on dialysis. And there's the, the big uh, red one is for hospital dialysis, where most people who take that form of treatment will go. Now, you might wonder why I've got a helicopter in the middle of this, but every single day, that's a very large helicopter, it takes 40 people, every single day, half a helicopter full, just under, it's 19 people, will land with kidney failure. So that's every single day. And of those 19, about four of them did not know their kidneys were going to fail. They were unexpected failures. And every single day, there's a helicopter landing again, delivering another load of people. And that's how, and, and that's why I put that there, because it just, I think it's, in a way, to know that 7,000 people every single year will face kidney failure, and some of those people simply didn't know that was going to happen to them, so their outcomes will be very difficult <coughs> as well, is, is a reason that we need to act as a charity to be able to provide that, that level of support to the challenge that exists. So patient numbers. I've talked about that already. 32,000 people with transplants, 29,000 on dialysis. But without dialysis, if your kidneys don't work, you will die. The average age on dialysis is actually about 66. But there's a higher prevalence of people from the black and um, Asian communities because uh, diabetes is more common, high blood pressure is more common, so they will tend to get kidney failure more quickly and younger. But in the 1980s, dialysis wasn't even available to people over 50. So that's quite a thought, isn't it? It just wasn't available at all. It was, it was very expensive, it still is expensive, and doctors, surgeons decided to give, would decide to, to give sorry, dialysis to people who they thought would be able to cope with it, rather than now when it is universally available. And then we have a picture of somebody on uh, hemodialysis. <coughs> so you can see the sort of machines we have nowadays. That's still quite a large machine, but back in the 70s and 80s, they were absolutely enormous things, absolutely enormous things. But now it's through the arm, and that's where the fistula will, will be. And that is a joint of a vein and an artery, with two needles going in, and one will pump it out to a machine that will clean the blood and return it back again in a cycle. And that you do about four times, uh, sorry, for about four hours, about three times a week, or more frequently if you're at home. So who we are, why we are, um, we have patients at the heart of everything we do, and we, we probably donate about three million pounds every year. We have no government funding at all, and about a million pounds of that is in small grants directly to kidney patients who've been affected by kidney failure. So that's, we pay for people's broken glasses, we pay for funerals, we pay for sheds in your garden to keep your dialysis equipment. Those are the kind of things we pay for. So patients will say that we are the fourth emergency service to them. And it's those personal stories that are the things that keep me going, keep me doing what, you know, what I do day after day. But if I could just explain a little bit about dialysis, it is a treatment, well, transplantation is a treatment too, but it, dialysis gives you only about 10% of your normal kidney function. So you don't 
feel great. And you've probably gathered that I spent time on, I spent five years on dialysis myself. And you feel sick a lot of the time, your bones ache, you can, your skin itches, you feel exhausted, you have a mental fog, and depression is very high. You can only drink half an... I'm trying to find a bottle here. Yeah, here we go. That's what you can drink in 24 hours. And that includes liquid in yoghurt, gravy, anything like that. And your diet is hugely restricted. Very little fruit, no bananas, because all of those things contain uh, elements that are very dangerous to us if we can't get rid of them. So I mentioned bananas, they have potassium. And if you can't get rid of potassium, it will give you a heart attack. That's, an, that's a simple example. So, the charity launched itself. Mrs. Wood got quite successful at raising money. And its, its key thing was to raise funds to help those individual patients. And I've already described what we do now. It was doing that back then in 40 years ago as well. She didn't have many staff. It was her plus an administrator and then her plus a company secretary and an administrator. She got a small grant, £2,000, from a firm called Hirscht Pharmaceuticals. And the, the method she used to donate that money was through a, a committee, a grants committee. And that's some of the august members of the grants committee a few years later. So the chap on the left here is uh, Tony Wing, who is it's quite a well-known, uh, he's passed away now, but we have an award in his name for, for help for young people, some research in the name of young people. That's Professor Stuart Cameron, again, he's a very well-known chap in the, the renal world. That's uh, Winston Churchill, Junior, I suppose you call him, and that is uh, the Duke of Westminster, who was at school with Timbo, and that's why he be he became a member of and a great supporter, member of the Grants Committee Council, and a great supporter of the charity. So and this is very much part of my job at the moment as well, getting kidneys on the national agenda. I've already talked about getting that kidney, the first ever kidney donor card together. What we also used to do, and we still try to do it <laughs> daily, is meet government ministers. Talk to government ministers. People simply don't, they simply won't be persuaded to, to think of kidney care above other things, or indeed alongside other things, if they don't understand what it means to patients, how, travel, how, how, uh, how burdensome kidney failure is. So there's an awful lot of networking, an awful lot of, of going on, um, uh, and publicity to do that. And Mrs. Ward, struck up what seems to be quite a good relationship with James Wilkinson, who was the then science correspondent of the BBC, which I think probably helped with some of that. So there we go. There's a few of them there. <laughs> you, can, you can see them all for yourselves. And I just want to read a quote from one of them. Um, this is from Neil Kinnock. The BKPA knows better than any other group of people how much should and could be done and it's getting on with doing a lot of it. So that was the Neil Kinnock quote. And we've got a range of those in our 40-year brochure that we just, we just put together. Now, what difference did that make? Well, I think it made a little difference in terms of fundraising, in terms of uh, awareness then. But this has to be constantly renewed, because memories are short in politics, as we know. So fundraising, I could have spent most of this talking about the fundraising we did, but rather than that, because that would be really boring, I just picked up two or three key things to share with you. So this was a Granada TV appeal, which was voiced by Joan Bakewell, and that was all to do with, with Elizabeth Ward meeting Joan Bakewell on the train and explaining how hard it is for kidney patients. Um, and actually, she's continued to support and have an interest in that. I was privileged to make her radio programme with her many years later. Um, do you ever, everyone hear the programme? It was called Inside the Ethics Committee. Anyone familiar with that one? Yeah. Someone at the back. Yeah. So, uh, and that was with Joan Bakewell as well. And that was about giving a transplant to, to a patient and a, a different decision. But anyway, uh, so she voiced that and it raised £500,000, which was, we reckon, worth about £2.5 in today's money. And that was, all to, that was collecting coupons, um, it was the sort of you know, green shield and pink shield type, all those kind of sales coupons and stamps and coins for sorting. It was a huge business attempting to uh, sort that lot out, but it was a, a really big and important fundraiser. So what do we do with some of that money? Now, if you are 
on dialysis and you're at hospital and you're feeling the way I already explained, it's unlikely you'll be able to take a holiday or even have the, the wish to go away on holiday. And therefore, uh, it seemed not just to us but to others that it's important to, be, to provide the opportunity for people to leave their own hospital, go somewhere else and receive dialysis. So we set up, this was a, a Butlin Centre, and again it was to do with sitting next to old Billy Butlin, who referred her to young Mr Billy Butlin at that time to, to be able to get a porter cabin set up, Brackersham Bay, and uh, provide holiday dialysis for, I think it was up to six patients at a time. It was a real learning curve. We also set some up, uh, got the money to set some up in, in Spain, in France, and in Jersey. The one in Spain was in an apartment, the others were, were variously set up as, as porter cabins or standalone type units. And there's a group of them there. They don't look very happy, actually, do they? But, <laughs> but anyway, and those are... And you can see a couple of the machines there alongside. And that's the Jersey unit with the aforesaid porter cabin, which rather than being painted regulation green, is, is, you can't see it there, it's painted a, a, a very nice blue, apparently. So that was, that was something to, I suppose, to start to liberate kidney patients, to be able to start to move around rather than simply be tied to your hospital. I pulled this one out because it was such a large, and it carried on paying off for so many years, such a large appeal. After a long time of, of nagging at Biddy Baxter and the BBC, we got a Blue Peter appeal, which Mrs Ward voiced herself, and it was, it was apparently the largest, at that time, it got the Guinness Book of Records, it was the largest ever amount of money raised from a single appeal on television. So she appealed through Blue Peter, to children, to families, and it, this one was all about jewellery. So it was, if you, you know, if you have just one, one earring or a broken bracelet or a broken watch, that's what they asked for. And that lot was sent off, and uh, there was so much stuff, they actually had to use board and garrison, they had to, some of the cells there, some of the army cells and the prison cells, to put all this stuff in, because there was nowhere to put all this stuff. So you, you kind of get an idea of it there. And that was two and a half million, but in today's money, God, 10, 15 million, something like that. So it was, it was huge, it was quite stunning. And we did some amazing things with it. <coughs> You've gathered there's been a, a lot of uh, concern in the way the charities work to support children. So a lot of the donations we, we have made have been towards children's units and to help children's units. Because while all this energy was going on, Tim, Timbo, was, was carrying on with his own life and he was gradually getting more and more poorly as well. Uh, fundraising went through, um, there, were, there was opera, there was Placido Domingo, there was Kiri Te Kanawa doing her thing as well. All those politicians came along to carol services and we had the Children of, of Courage Awards. This one, it was an annual event, this one was in uh, Claridge's. So I talked about some of those grants. So up in Scotland, Kidney care for children, think about it. We had some centres of excellence in some parts of the country, but those centres of excellence started, people worked on adults rather than children to start with, so starting to try to apply adult, adult kidney care to children was another series of, of learning. And that wasn't much in Scotland at that time. So our funding set this hospital up, it's still around, it's the uh, York it's a Hospital for Sick Children, which... Um, which isn't a great name, but anyway, the hospital for, I call it, I'd like to call it a paediatric hospital there. And we gave the funding to that hospital, but the ministry in Scotland had to pay for the running of it. And there was a bit of debate, and took quite some time before they agreed to do that. But they saw sense in the end, and that was 20-something years ago. Now, I've talked about Timbo still being, still being unwell. He worked for some of those auctioneers I talked about earlier, Sotheby's and Bonham's, hence some of the fundraising links earlier. He also uh, had a, a little, uh, I've brought a copy of it, I think it's probably a very, very old copy because it's a little bit, a little bit moth-eaten. He also wrote a, a collection of verses and I thought it would be appropriate, and so did his mother, if I put just a little bit of that in here. Um, so this is something he wrote towards the end of his life. Remember, he was only 34 when he died. I'm fighting for my life right now. Sure, I've done all that before. But the outcome of this fight couldn't matter to me more. 
The cause I fight for now so hard is not my beating heart. I fight now for the will I have that's helped me from the start. He passed away quite soon after his third transplant, which was a living donation from his, his father, Nigel. But the work of the charity carried on. Remember, we'd been raising all that, all that, mon all that money, and we had all that energy there. So we actually, called, a ward was called the Timbo Ward, and that opened at Guy's Hospital, and you can see here, again, supported by a member of the royal family, Princess Alexandra, in this case. We initiated a series of services because it was all about the patient and all about supporting the patient. So here are a few examples, putting babysitting in at Nottingham, where parents', parents children were being looked after. It is so hard. I've been to some of those hospitals where you have babies on, it would break your heart, you have babies on dialysis, and of course the parents have to abandon the rest of the family because they have to stay with their, their babies, and trying to, trying to actually get that going, is, is keep a family going is really challenging. And for 20 years we, we gave a lot of funding to the Ronald McDonald houses that some of you might be aware of to enable parents and families to stay overnight with their children when they were very ill. Social workers, we've done a lot of work with the social workers because... A kidney patient is a, an individual, it's not just the kidney you're treating, it's the whole person, and they will need other support. So we, we, we have funded a number of social workers. The idea is it's a seed funding, we give the money to the hospital for, for say, two years, and then the idea is that they will carry on funding it. It doesn't always work, but it, it works in some cases. And so to have social workers who are able to help with counselling as well, that was something that we introduced. The first school's education pack. If I tell you that even now 50% of people, according to a, an Ipsos Mori poll last year, in the UK, did not know that the kidneys make urine. So how on earth are they going to understand anything about what kidneys do, or transplants, or any of that stuff? So starting young, educating children is <laughs> clearly an important thing to do. And the TV commercial there. And that's those uh, pupil worksheets that I just discussed. I put this one in here because it's a great photo and you can probably guess who some of the people are. So this was about 1997. Mrs Ward had received an MBE as well by, by now for services to kidney patients. Michael Aspel, Duke of Westminster and her, they were in Guy's Hospital for some cake or party something and Michael Aspel turned up with the big red book for This Is Your Life. So she had her own programme there and I just thought that was such a good picture. I asked her for a picture now, she said... I don't want one now of, of me, being, me being 90, I want one from the past. So I, I took that from her photo album the other day and, and added it in. So we continued our work, and here is just, just to rattle through some of these, some of the other significant grants. Birmingham Children's Hospital is still doing a fantastic job for young kidney patients. And you can see teenage facilities. You can also see we start to support the British Transplant Games, which is a wonderful event, about eight or 900 people who've had a transplant, including children, every year get together to celebrate that gift of life. And, of course, our colleagues at the British Renal Society, with whom we work now to produce further research into it's to do with quality of life with kidney patients rather than um, real clinical uh, science-type research into zebrafish, or anything. we don't do that side of things. And... Just one more of those, that's the kidney centre that we funded at Great Ormond Street, which you know is a world-leading hospital, and you can see for yourself, um, Tess Daly, Tanny Gray-Thompson and Sebastian, now Lord Coe, in the middle there. So we had, we had a lot of support for the work that we did, but we did an awful lot of work as well. And those, those little kids, that's from the transplant games, that's the Belfast team, all those little boys have had a transplant, and that's why they went along to, to celebrate it. You could, there are about a thousand children in this country with kidney failure at the moment. Most of them will have a transplant, but they'll usually need more than one in their lives because transplants don't, don't last forever. So let's just talk now, just move on and talk a little bit about transplantation and some of the numbers. One donor can transform the life of up to nine others through their selfless donation, but every single day, three people die while they're waiting for a transplant, and that's all organs, not just kidneys. And transplantation saved my life, and that's the reason I'm able to stand here today and talk to you about all of this. But only 5,000 people a year will pass away in a circumstance where they could even donate their organs. 
So it's incredibly important that people who do wish to donate have what we call the donation conversation with their nearest and dearest, because you don't want to have a conversation like that at the very, uh, at the you know the awful time of a bereavement. Most people think it's important to discuss their donation wishes, but they simply don't get round to it. But if a family knows what their loved one's wishes are, they are more likely to, to agree to donate their loved one's organs than not. You can see the figures there for yourself. Far fewer families will be likely to donate if, they don't, if, if it comes as a surprise. This is from four years ago. It hasn't changed a lot. Unfortunately, we are in this country a leader in saying no, um, and that's something that through our work and the work of others we hope to change. In 2011, 43% of families would say no to donation. It's now about 38%. So it's very, very slow progress. And I've talked already about, about uh, black and Asian uh, communities and the greater likelihood of needing a kidney. However, the facts are you're far more likely to, uh, to need a transplant than ever to be a donor. That's how the facts work out. So let's look at the age of deceased donors. You can donate at, at, at a greater age, um, and many do, and you can actually see people getting older, donors getting older as the years move on. But today, there are about 5,200 people waiting for a kidney transplant, and one of those will die every day while they're waiting. So now, just a little bit about, about my own personal relationship with this and why I'm so passionate about it. I mentioned already that I had a kidney donor card from, from when I was at university, sorry, a donor card from when I was at university. I tried to give blood when I was 18 and I, was I had anemia, had very, very profound anemia and I was turned down. I tried again and I was turned down. Eventually the blood service wrote to me and said, we don't want your blood, thanks very much. <laughs> but nobody said, why would an 18-year-old be really, really anemic? Because obviously that's not, that's not right, is it? But time carried on, um, and I became... Uh, this is Emily, my daughter. She's 25 now. <laughs> um, uh, and I became very ill when I was pregnant. And she, I had... Uh, when, when she was born, she had to be born two months earlier, uh, early, it's called preeclampsia. My kidneys started going wrong very, very quickly, so she had to be born very swiftly. It was very, very traumatic. And yet it still took another four or five years in the birth of, my, of, my, of our second child, Tom, a boy, to, for anyone to think, mm, she's actually got something wrong with her kidneys. It took a long time, too long, I have to say. I was also told that um, at some point my kidneys might fail. It could be 10 or 15 or 20 years. However, by 2002, I went, had to go on to kidney dialysis. So I spent five years on dialysis, and I met a lady from the BKPA. That's what th this is from a BKPA annual magazine. It's not a very good picture, but still. A lady had come into the unit in St Albans in Hertfordshire, where I live, um, and she was doing an interview with someone that we'd given a, uh, the money to, to go, her family to go away on a holiday, on a break. And she saw me across the unit, and I was on a bike. I was cycling on dialysis. You remember I said about how your bones ache. So one way you can help that is to take some exercise. So not everybody is able to do so. So I'm on the bike, so she came straight over and said, what, what are you doing? I must take a photo of you for our magazine. So that's it's not great quality. But So I spent five years going through that. And as that time went on, I got more and more poorly. Um, I hoped to get a transplant from the, the list. I was never, ever called. My husband came forward, Keith, and in, uh, so it would be 2006, I suppose, yeah, Christmas 2006, we had, uh, we both had a surgery, we both went into, into hospital, and he donated his kidney to me. It's quite hard for the children to, to go through that, mummy and dad, mum and dad both being <coughs> in hospital, but actually we both came out of it very quickly, and I can't tell you, when you wake up from having a kidney trans a transplant, and suddenly your whole world lights up again and you've because you've forgotten how terrible you feel when you have when your kidneys aren't working i mentioned already 10% of your normal kidney function and as my sister said at the time never have i been so happy to see a bag of urine filling up at the bottom of a bed <laughs> so 
One third of kidney patients, sorry, of kidney transplants every year are from living donors. Some of them are altruistic. Ten years ago, the law changed. There are actually people out there who think, I'm going to donate my kidney, not to a loved one, but to someone I've never met. And when that first happened, I thought, gosh, that'll never make it. People aren't going to do that. Wow, amazing. And they have. Last year, we were proud to work with it on this one, 500 donors had come forward. You think, what a difference does that make? Not everybody has a husband like, like I've got, or a partner, or a child, you know, like others have, to donate a kidney. So that, this is a fantastic new thing that, 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 that has come on by a, by a change in the law. And they now represent about 100 of all, sorry, 100, 10% of all kid, of, of living donations every year. Quite extraordinary. Now, I had another slide earlier about getting kidneys on the national agenda. And that's part of my job right now as well. Consent to donate organs. I've already touched on it a little bit. What's going on? Some of you might know that in December 2015, the law in Wales changed. And it is now what's called opt-in. Sorry, opt-out. Um, what that means is it is assumed, it is deemed, that you are willing to donate your organs unless you have opted out. That is, gone onto a register and said, I don't wish to donate. You can go into the register and say, I do wish to donate, or you can do nothing, which means your consent is deemed. So, the so in other words, rather than the default, which is in this country, that it's no unless you say yes, the default is it's yes unless you say no, and that's how it, it's turned around. In Scotland, we've just, they've just finished a consultation. The government there is minded to go to take the same approach. It stated it very, very clearly. And we were pleased to support that consultation. Northern Ireland considered it last year as well. That didn't come to anything yet, but then you know the Northern Ireland government has gone through quite a lot of change uh, recently. In England, nothing. No consideration, no consultation. As you can imagine, we feel quite strongly that that should be a question. People should, I know there's Brexit, I know there's lots of other things happening, but still, kidney failure still goes on despite Brexit, doesn't it? And there is no consultation, there is no conversation of that nature happening in England. So just starting to, to draw it to a, to a close now. How we help patients and their families. I hope I'll have given you a bit of an understanding of, of, of how we help and why we need to help patients and their families. So promoting the welfare of people with kidney disease, that financial assistance, but also support and advice, and I'll speak about that a little more in a minute, the holidays and respite care. Campaigning, my, part of my role with my colleagues to improve lives and choices. We think everyone should have the best chance they can, no matter where they live, of having a kidney transplant. Everyone should have the full choice of, of dialysis treatments if, in the meantime, or if they're not ever going to be able to have a transplant. Educating and informing patients and improving the quality and access to care. Those leaflets I put out are around that side of things, the sort of grants that we give to hospitals and, and for hospital teams. That's what those ones are about. So our patient services, we move on. We, about 18 months ago, we took on a series of advocacy officers that we'd been funding through another charity for the previous five years. Those are people, mainly patients, some of them are, are partners to patients, and they are fully trained, accredited uh, advocates, and they work all over the country with local patients. That will be with uh, tribunals, you know, if you've lost your job because you can't work anymore or you can't work as many hours, that happens. Housing, if you want to dialyse at home, do you need appropriate accommodation? Um, and it will be with benefits. And again, you'll know from listening to the news that some of those benefits are being changed at the moment and a lot of people are losing their benefits. We're having to spend a lot of our time working to support patients. When they appeal, they, they seem to get them granted again, but they're losing their benefits quite rapidly. And some don't bother to, to reappeal. And some decide to stop dialysis because they can't face the hassle anymore. We have counsellors. There aren't enough counsellors available throughout the country. So we have two uh, fully trained renal counsellors who provide telephone counselling. It's face-to-face. -face, it, many people think it's better, and I would agree that sometimes that's the case. But that's a service we're able to, to offer, and we integrate that with, with the grant services as well. Patient information, there's a few of our leaflets at the back there, should anyone be interested, but this is the transplantation one. 
quite naturally because of where we are. And patient education, just very briefly, I talked about having access to choices uh, just last year, and we're going to do the same this year, working with a couple of uh, industry um, organisations. We brought some camper vans with dialysis kit to some different hospitals to, uh, offered with expert patients doing the dialysis so people who are dialysing in hospitals could go and have a look at what it's like and think, do I want to go home and be able to have a treatment that for some is better because it's, it's, you don't have to go through the hassle of going to hospital three times a week. You can have dialysis more frequently at your own home should you wish to do so. And there he is, I love that picture, that's my friend John. He's on dialysis in a camper van and he's talking to a local, someone on the local radio about his life and how it is. So he's larger than life, that, larger than life, that chap, but he's also hoping that he will get a transplant one day. And that's some of our team in the hospital, in one of the hospitals. That's the Lister Hospital in Hertfordshire. And almost finally, I'd like to share this with you. On the nights, it was the 9th of March, it was World Kidney Day. Now, you know there are... World Sausage Day, International Day of Happiness was yesterday or something. Those days are all the time. And about 12 years ago, someone decided to have World Kidney Day. But, and others might say, oh goodness, another Awareness Day. But for kidney patients, bearing in mind all the things I've said already, having a, a national day, well actually it's an international day, is really, really important. So we have a Facebook, a closed Facebook group, about 5,000 patients who are active in, in exchanging in information and sharing experiences. And some of them went, hmm, we're not very happy. Where's the, where's the national news about kidneys? No one's talking about kidneys. We, we don't like that. Um, and they decided to get together and all put their photographs together with a little caption which said, I don't look ill. And the reason that's there is because lots of people say, and it's true that many people with kidney failure don't actually look that ill, they feel terrible, but it's not visible like some of the other conditions. Although I would say, I would disagree, the longer you've been on dialysis, the worse you look. But maybe if you've not been on, only been on for one or two years, it's not the same. But if you've long time on dialysis, your skin does tend to turn uh, yellow. <coughs> so they put that up with their captions, they went on Twitter, they did all the other things there. And they, they're, going, they're currently going to make a T-shirt as well. But this is what they made for World Kidney Day. So it's a collage of lots and lots of faces. And the, just very, very touchingly, there's two pictures in the, in the middle. Have I got a pointer? Oh, thank you. It's not going to work anyway, after all that. Never mind, it doesn't matter. Um, you'll see um, two people. You'll see this young lady here and that box. Both of them, one of them is the ashes of uh, one, a lady's husband who'd passed away through kidney, uh, kidney failure, although most people with kidney disease will die, actually die of a heart, heart failure because of the stress it puts on the heart. And the other is someone's daughter, again, she's passed away. And they wanted their pictures to be there as the centre of this collage that, that they did for awareness. So it was, it was entirely done by the, by the group of the patients that, that we, we support. It wasn't anything, we didn't do it, they did it. But we were obviously very, very pleased to... To, to share it and tell everybody about it. And that's why I wanted to bring it to you today because I think it makes it very, very clear that people feel incredibly strongly about what's happened to them. And many of them got onto their local papers because they were also wanted to talk about it to others and tell others, remind others what they can do, which is look after your kidneys, keep them healthy if you can. And if you can't, think about putting your name onto the organ donor register to help others. So I'd like to conclude, but before I do, I would also like to thank all those patients that we support, all those amazing fundraisers throughout the years, all those parents and those families, but all the surgeons and doctors and, and the social workers and nurses who give us unstinting support through the NHS and who've been able to increase the level of um, support and care throughout the years for people with kidney failure. This, the middle of this year, we're changing our name. We're going to be Kidney Care UK, exactly the same organisation, doing the same thing for kidney patients. We just want to be very clear about our name and what it is we do. And that's us, and I'd just like to thank you all very much for your attention. Thank you so much. Thank you. Any, has anyone got any questions? Because I've got some bits and pieces to go through. 
So let's have a think. We have two kidneys, a heart, liver, uh, pancreas, small bowel, corneas, uh, skin, tissue. I think that's, that's all. Oh, no, 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 not at all. No, I meant all the organs. No, <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> and actually, there's eyelets as well. No, so, yeah, so one donor can give... I was talking more generally rather than just the kidneys. That would be extraordinary. In fact, we wouldn't have a problem if we could chop them into nine, and <laughs> I suppose. But I seem to recall that in the early days there was a major problem with rejection. You know, the Good question. With the transplant. I mean, how, what, how soon, by the sounds of it, that's been overcome as a problem? It hasn't been overcome completely, but it's a really good point. Some of the earlier drugs, some of you, there's one called cyclosporin. Uh, anyway, the, some of the earlier drugs were very tough um, and very, very demanding on people. And as they, uh, and, and therefore, people, people sometimes did reject. And, and, and introducing drugs to suppress your immune system to stop the alien, the alien organ that's come into your body from rejecting requires suppression of the immune system and hence lots and lots of drugs lots and lots of, uh, of, of drug companies having to work on this and produce try to produce products that have less and less side effects because over time some of the side effects are quite uh, quite challenging um, bowel problems um, for example cancer is cancer can be another one and there's a range of, of others shaking hands is, is a side effect from from some of them, but they have improved enormously. They're still not perfect, but there is even one. It's very expensive. There's even one that you can take uh, just once a month now. So some of those are the cancer drugs as well. They're actually some of the drugs that have been developed for cancer and now being brought over to here. And just last year, we were working with the National Institute of Health and Social Excellence, that's NICE as they're called now, who decided they were going to... They made an error in my in my opinion, they, want, they looked at the, the drugs to stop you rejecting your kidney and decided that only certain drugs could be recommended in the future, which we thought was incredibly short-sighted. So we had to go to appeal, appeal. so I had to, with others, to, and it's like a legal appeal against it, and then um, they actually came up with a conclusion that they weren't going to do that anymore. Because what they actually wanted, what they actually, I think, meant to do was say, for a first transplant, when it's straightforward, please use these three drugs to start with, and then the other, and then the other drugs can be brought in later on, because those are the slightly less expensive drugs. But the effect of what they were going to do would have meant that all the other drugs, if you, had a, if you were somebody perhaps having a second transplant, because if you, uh, you can build up antibodies, and, and the higher your antibody level, it's more likely you will reject your, your transplant. So that's what they, I'd like to think, <laughs> had, had not intended to do. So that's an example of what, of what we do as well. Sorry, I didn't quite catch that. Health insurance. Yeah, well, that's a good question, actually. Um, travel insurance, for example, I have to pay more for travel insurance because, because there is a risk, because I've been ill, that I could be ill again. And one of the questions I'm asked is, um, is your transplant, um, have you been told your transplant is failing? So I'm able to get coverage, but it does vary. If people are on the transplant list, <coughs> getting transplant, sorry, getting travel uh, coverage, we have to go to specialist companies. Basically, we have to go to specialist companies to help us. So, but for donors, it's all right. It's just for the recipients. What, why so a range, of, a range of reasons. Obviously, I'm not a medic, but I can just give you my understanding of it. So um, one can be that the, uh, the drugs that I've just mentioned, the body is not able to, to take them anymore. And actually, immunosuppressant drugs are very strong and if you have too strong a dose, they can actually scar and damage the kidney. So it's a, getting that balance really, really right is one thing. If you become very ill, it may be that your body's defences are so low that you have to that um, <coughs> it's not able to cope with your kidney as well, and it will start to reject the kidney. I, I know people who've had incredibly serious uh, pneumonia, um, and they've had to, in order to, to save their lives, they've had to come off their all drugs in order because, as their nurse said to them, there's only one you but you could get another transplant one day, so to save, some, to save somebody's life. Sometimes a kidney that is implanted could be from a, a, 
you know, a donor who, whose function wasn't, per wasn't perfect, and that's quite likely you saw the older donors come along. So naturally, as anybody gets older, as any of you in the room get older, your kidney function will decline naturally anyway. So you could have a kidney that, that's quite an old kidney and is just going through a natural level of decline. So there's a, a whole range of complex reasons, or uh, malignancy, so cancer could be another reason for that as well. And I'm sure others can give me lots of other reasons why, why that would happen, but it's a, it, it, it's a range of things, and literally sometimes they just, they just, they don't, and occasionally people don't even know why they they're not working anymore, but it can be, a, oh, there's a number of viruses as well, there's some quite nasty viruses that can attack the transplanted kidney also. Um, when your immune system is down, of course, your body is prone to all sorts of other attacks as well, I'm afraid. Most of them last for a reasonable period of time, but they don't last forever, mostly. But just last week, a uh, chap who was given his kidney when he was six has just celebrated his 50th anniversary of a transplant. So there are exceptional cases. But quite often, and this is... Exceptional cases. No, the guy who was six. Oh, sorry. Uh, his, it was his 50th anniversary of his transplant. I beg your pardon. So 56 years now with a 50-year-old kidney inside him, 50-year-old transplant inside him. Those cases will start to happen more and more, but the average length of time for a kidney, uh, a deceased donor kidney, is between 10 and 15 years, and after that they tend that, that they will sometimes give up. Not always. It can take, they can last for a lot longer, and they tend to last longer from a, as a, from a living donor as well, because a living donor will have gone through all number of tests to make sure that they are healthy, because, of course, they need to be well enough for their remaining kidney to keep them alive and well in the future also. On the world stage, is Britain a good place to have a, a transplant? Is Brit yeah, it, it's a really good place to have a transplant. We do, we do have, we do have um, very, very good outcomes. Very, very good outcomes indeed. There are lots of places that, that aren't good to have transplants in the third world and so forth. But we have, um, we have, a fully, we have an ethical and a moral system set up here. If anybody wants to donate their kidney as a living donor, they have to go through an external ethics committee that is regulated by the Human Tissue Authority to make sure that they're not under any... Uh, not being bribed, shall we say, to donate their, to donate their kidneys. The levels of uh, infection um, stand up very reasonably as well against against others. So, I think we can be proud of what we do. I would say the leader is the US, which won't surprise you. <laughs> that was a splendid talk. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Uh, can I just give you a little history? Uh, you said that the first transplant in yeah. kidney transplant in this country uh, was in 1960 in uh, Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. Absolutely right. It was a chap called Professor Michael Woodruff, who was a New Zealander, professor of surgery, and it was uh, an identical twin transplant, just like the ones that have been done yeah, in, in Boston. Boston. Very successful. Uh, in 1963, I was a, a young professor of surgery at Westminster, and I appointed a young lad, he looked like 14, uh, called Roy Calm as my first <laughs> senior lecturer. And uh, he said at, at the interview that he'd done all the experimental work on uh, using anti-rejection uh, drugs while he was in Boston working there. And he was now ready to start a human transplant program. And he did the first transplant in 1963 uh, while he was with me at Westminster, did 13 more transplants uh, in, in the next two years, then went to Cambridge where he set up this wonderful transplant program and uh, uh, really put a kidney transplant on the program uh, on the map in this country. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank Couldn't you very much. Better myself. <laughs> Thank you. And so Roy Khan was a real leader. He, um, our, the chair of our trustees, one who just stepped down, Sally Tabor, who some of you might know. So Sally was one of, was a nurse with him at Cambridge and. Uh, last year at the transplant games that we mentioned. So Roy Khan came down with one of his patients, a lady called Angela, who's had her transplant for about 45 years, and he went through some of that history, and it was, it was extraordinary. The room was full he's of transplant patients. Like a I know, he's, st he's still there, and he does his art, and he was able to take us all the way through all those years with all his patients and the people he'd saved. So, and the room like this was, was full of transplant patients who'd all 
and that working with the drugs that we talked about earlier, all of those were things that he'd done. So it was, and it's fantastic that some of these people are still around to tell their story. So thank you ever so much for, for sharing. That's great. Thank you. Well, I don't call myself a patient. I'm just somebody who's had a transplant. If I'm in hospital and not very well, I'd be a patient, just as any of you would be. So I don't really call myself a patient. It's just sometimes we call... It's just a, a, a term of phrase. But And you're right. Some people say, should we be called patients? Should we be called something else, like service user or something? But most... Survivor. Yeah, survivor. That'll do. <laughs> but I think if you're in hospital you are, and you're not very well, then you're a patient. Other than that, you're... You're a person, you're a human being who has, and in my case, and at least one other person in this audience, had been able to benefit from the gift of life and able to celebrate that and go on and celebrate that. Thank you, everybody. I've got um, um, a photo album that I'm going to take down to the end of the room. If any of you would like to look at the history of the charity a little bit more. I've got some organ donor forms back there for some of you. If you want to take any of those home and share them with your family, that would be fantastic. So thank you all so much for your attention. Thank you. And um, on behalf of the Ontario and the Royal College of Surgeons, I'd also like to thank Fiona again for coming today. And to say this is our, this is our penultimate lecture our, in our, this current series of Transplant and Life. We have one more lunchtime lecture on the 25th of April, which is another Tuesday, 1 till 2, which is on transplant before transplant. So looking at some of the extremely ancient, uh, obviously non-organ uh, transplant practices uh, of previous ages. So if you're interested, please do sign up for that. And um, thank you all for coming today. <laughs>